Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Second Timothy 3, chapter 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. I want you to notice all the words that he uses rolling up to that three-word sentence, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring, suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I pray that your anointing would be upon my lips to speak your words. Your word is already anointed, but that your anointing would be in this room resting upon each and every one of us, that you would open up our understanding, that you would grant to us revelation in this place through your word. Help us, give us strength for the journey, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I mentioned last week that this would be a two-part sermon. So this is part two of this sermon, the last one last week, still focusing on 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Last week we talked about the nature of Scripture. What is Scripture? What is the Bible? And we said, well, it's God-breathed. It's the breath of God in writing. Scripture is the result of the Holy Spirit moving upon holy men of old as they wrote words under the highest possible level of inspiration. We talked last week about how Scripture is the Holy Spirit in a book. It's what the Bible is. God breathed out words that we have today. John Calvin wrote in the Institutes that Scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit. And so now that we know what Scripture is from last week, we ask this week, what is Scripture good for? What does it do? If God breathed words into existence, how do we use those words? Are they relevant? Is the Bible even useful? Or are they boring? I think everyone who has read the Bible long enough at some point has thought, I am just not getting into this part. I mean, if we're honest. You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm not getting this. I'm reading, reading all the dietary laws of Leviticus going, how does that really apply to me? Like, Jesus, can't I be in John reading your words right now? Like, what am I doing here? Uh, 
So I would contend that the Bible is never boring. And yet I've been there. I mean, I, I, I get that mindset. But it's not possible that the Bible is boring because it's His Word. And God's not boring. So what's going on? Well, we are often, all of us often are blind to the glory of God. So God help us. I mean, we pray this morning, God help us to see you as you really are in the Bible. I pray for every one of you when you read Scripture that God would unleash stunning amounts of His glory out of your Bible, upon you, as you read the words from the Holy Scriptures. What is the purpose of the Bible? So we talked last week about Scripture is breathed out by God, but then he says it's profitable. Paul said it's useful, and it's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The Bible has a purpose in your life. So what is teaching? How many can remember a good teacher that you had that made an influence on you? Hopefully there's, there's people that come to your mind. What about a bad teacher? Like we've all had bad teachers. I've had some really bad teachers in school. Like legitimately, that was their reputation. I had a teacher, and she wouldn't rank at the top, but I had a teacher in, in high school where her method of teaching was to stand up for the class, pick up a piece of chalk, start writing on the chalkboard, and the class of about 25 would write down in their notebooks everything that she wrote down, and that was what we did. Well, that's not teaching. They were doing that thousands of years ago. They called them scriptorians. That's how they made copies of things. Someone would read out or write out, and, and people would write it down. And they would do that again and again. That's not teaching. A great teacher doesn't just transfer information to your brain. That's what she was trying to do. I sat in the, the back of the class and she said, one day she stopped, she said, why are you not writing? So well, honestly, I can't see. I couldn't read the chalkboard. Uh, it was all a blur. And she said, well, then you need to get up and sit where you can see. I said, okay. So I walked up and sat in her chair behind her desk, spun the chair around, sat there, and she did not kick me out. She did, however, call my mother, which made me get glasses. So, <laughs> but all she was doing was transferring information. Great teachers transform your thinking, and I've had those teachers. They change who you are as a person. Because teaching is powerful. We entrust our children to a system every day that shapes their minds for hours a day. We go to university and we sit for four and six and eight years under powerful influencers that shape the minds of people and thus shape our entire society. Seth Godin argues, I think correctly, that school should be for teaching children how to lead and how to solve interesting problems, how to think. Great educational programs teach children and adults how to engage in critical thinking. What teaching does is imparts to people a greater sense of the world, a greater sense of reality. It moves you to what is, in your mind, to a greater reality. So I'm going to ask everybody to, to do something right now. If you have a cell phone, I'm going to ask you to get your phone out. And 29 years of preaching, I've never done this. But I was going to try to write it on the board, and my artistic abilities are that of about a six-month-old. So I thought, we'll just do it this way. So if you'll go to our church website, 
redemptiondallas.org. And there's two ways to do it. You could go redemptiondallas.org forward slash cave, C-A-V-E, or on the homepage, just scroll to the bottom. Scroll to the bottom, and at the bottom, there'll be a link called Sermon Illustration. Let me know when you've got it. It's a picture. How many have a picture? Okay. All right. Can someone show these two ladies back here so they can see what it is? Or just, just sit next to them? Let, let, just kind of show it to them. So this is a picture. So, like what in the world are we looking at, right? I mean, this is a, this is a bizarre picture. Well, what this picture is, is an artist depiction of what Plato talks about in his book, The Republic. So Plato wrote a book 2,400 years ago, 375 years before Jesus walked the earth. Plato writes this book that's been very influential even today. And in the book, he does not draw a picture. He writes all this out, and people have depicted it in art. And this is what you're looking at, because this I know it's a bizarre picture. So in the bottom left, the people you see that are looking at the wall, they are chained. They are chained to the floor. They have been chained to the floor their entire life. They have never moved position. They are simply staring at the wall. They've never had any other contact with people. They don't know anything else. And all they've ever seen are the shadows. The shadows are projected on the wall by the people standing directly behind them. It's Plato likens this to the way that a puppeteer would, would do shadow puppets. It's what he talks about. He says, just as they would do shadow puppets. They are holding up a vase, a bird, and a tree, the symbols of those things, on sticks. The light that is casting the shadow is the fire behind them. So the fire is hitting the objects and casting it. And these people see the vase, the bird, and the tree, or they see the shadow. The people hear the voices, and Plato says, we think the voices, those people think the voices come from the shadows. It must be the shadows talking. <clears throat> if the person can eventually, if the slave can break free and eventually climb out of the cave, which is what is going on on the right-hand side, they're going to climb out of the cave. They're going to be blinded by the sun. The guy at the top, is, he's never seen daylight. He's having a hard time seeing. But they are going to climb out, and the people standing on top of the grass are looking around, seeing reality. They're seeing the birds in the sky. They're seeing the vase on the ground. They're seeing the trees. There are people in this picture that think the shadow is the ultimate reality. They don't know any different. If they get up, they can turn around and think, oh no, the shadow's not the reality. The tree is actually an object on a stick. But if they get out of the cave and climb out of the cave, they're going to see the tree as it really is. Now, people have been talking about this for 2,400 years, what all this really means. In a sense, what I am relating it to today is this is what great teachers do. 
This is what great preaching does, is it takes you from a place that you think you understand to a higher place. And if Plato is talking about that in purely secular terms, how much more when it relates to the Word of God and to Scripture? Should we be looking at the book, looking at the text, saying, God, show me what is really there. Let me see. If you read the book of Hebrews, chapter 8 through chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews talks about all of this. He talks about shadows and copies and the things in the heavens. He's using all of this type of imagery to describe the reality of Jesus and the reality of the kingdom. That's what great teaching does. God is light. It is His nature. And what we want to see every Sunday when we come together, what I want you to see every day when you have your nose in a Bible reading the text is pleading to God and saying, let me see your word for what is really there. Let me climb out of the cave into the light. Let the, the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ shine and let me see reality and real life in me as I really am. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun. I don't just see it, I see everything else by it. That's what great teaching does, and that's what we should be going for, because when we teach Scripture, it's not just the impartation of information. I can hand out books and say, we never have to meet again, read these books, they'll do way better than I will at conveying information. We're bringing people to the reality of all of life. So what does it mean to teach Scripture? If this Bible that we have is so powerful, so good, what does it mean for us to learn from Scripture? So I, I want us to see the connection between the usefulness of Scripture in verse 16 and verses 1 and 2 in chapter 4. Because what happens, and this happens all the time when you read your Bible, we end a chapter and we start another chapter, and in our minds we break into a new thought. But the chapter divisions are artificial. They weren't there. Paul did not say, okay, that's it for chapter 3, chapter 4. Now we put those there so we could find the verses easier when we read. Paul, it's just one long text. So we read. We let verses 16 and 17 flow right into verses 1 and 2 in chapter 4. How is the usefulness of Scripture employed? If verse 16 is the nature of Scripture and the second part of verse 16 is the usefulness of Scripture, verses 1 and 2 is how the usefulness of Scripture is employed, namely by preaching. Now, I'm not here arguing that teaching and preaching are the same thing. There are differences, but there's also a lot of crossover. So teaching, the teaching of Scripture in this context, we're not talking about the teaching of math. We're not talking about teaching biology. We're not talking about teaching physics and saying, well, here's, you know, the atom. No, no, it's referring to the teaching of the Bible specifically. So everything we teach and preach must come through Scripture. Why is this so important? I spent this week, the entire week this week in Oklahoma City, and I sat for four days and heard some of the most abhorrent ideas about God that I've ever heard in my life. I was, I was just stunned at what I was hearing. And the best that I could come up with on why these men think how they do 
because in the four days I determined, I think they're very sincere. I don't think they're fraudulent. I think they're sincere. But my word, a million miles off base. For a man to, to stand up in a room and talk about his faith, and I had a chance to, to pray and lay hands on this person, and all oh, they're changed, and he's got his hat on that says worship, and <clears throat> five seconds later, dropping F-bombs right and left. Just boom, and he's just like, I don't have a category for that. Another man who said some things that were, it's not the fact of being offensive, it's the fact that, like, who is teaching you? Who is discipling you? What preaching are you sitting under that you're thinking in these categories? I think they were sincere in their faith, but they desperately need a church to teach them the Word of God and to ground them in biblical truth. So what are we trying to accomplish when we teach the Bible? What, what are we trying to do when we come together? Now that's a question that we could go around the room and ask that question. When we teach the Bible, what are some things we're trying to accomplish? And we could come up with ten different great answers. But I'll give you one. When we are in Scripture, we want people to see that Jesus is at the center of everything. It's all about Jesus. That's the point of Scripture. We find out from the New Testament that Jesus is in the Old Testament in creation. All the, everything that was created was created by Him. We see the Old Testament pointing to Jesus everywhere. I mean, Jesus stands up and they kill Him for this. He says, search the Scriptures, for in them they have life, and they are they that testify of Me. Well, the Scriptures He was referring to was their Old Testament. He's saying, I'm the guy in the Old Testament that it's talking about. It was pointing to me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the promised one. We see the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ and His kingdom as central to the story of the Bible. We see the heart of the gospel as the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. It's all about Jesus. We see and teach that we are sinners. Every single one of us were born in sin, shaped in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me, David said. And we see Christ as the Redeemer. He is the answer for my sin because my sin is justly causing me to be damned and condemned for all of eternity to pay for my transgressions. The question is never how could a loving God send people to hell. The question is how could a holy God not require judgment upon sin. So faith is the avenue by which we are justified and receive Christ imputed, imputing His righteousness to us. The Bible's about Jesus. We see the consummation of His kingdom in Scripture as the second coming of Jesus at some point in the future. We see and want others to see that Jesus is in us through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We see from Scripture and teach from Scripture that Jesus is the only way to eternal life. He is not a way... He is the way, the truth, and the life. I've seen famous preachers get cornered on secular media shows, interviews, and they'll, they'll corner them and say, do you think Jesus is really the only way? And it's, it's, you see these people kind of squirm in their seats. Like, and I've seen other ones that have just been so emphatic, like, yes, that's actually the message that we teach. What about this guy over here? Well, if he doesn't come through Jesus, he's not going to be saved. Everybody that's saved comes through Jesus. We teach Jesus because of what's in the Bible. 
Scripture is useful for teaching. And then he says, for reproof. Reproof is rebuke. None of us ever get so spiritual that we don't need the Word of God to point its finger at us and tell us where we're missing the mark. Especially if it's rebuking something in our life that clearly does not align with God's Word. And I hope that happens to all of us on a regular basis, myself included. I hope we read Scripture, use it as a mirror, and let it reflect back and say, yeah, I'm not, I'm not there. That's not me. We say we're Christian like we're Christ-like. None of us are fully like Jesus. It's easy to get the things that people expect. We check all the boxes of what people expect. But what the Holy Spirit does is He, he walks up and down the corridors of our heart and He finds closets and knocks on the door and you know, say, nothing to see here, Jesus. Let's move on down to the other room. I don't want you going through that room. I don't want you seeing the attitudes and drives and inner things and desires and lusts and bitterness and emotions that lie in that closet. Why don't you go down here to this room where I'm... That's my public-facing image. Let's let's go in there, but don't, don't go behind closed doors. There is an abundance of teaching in the church today, but there is a conspicuous absence of rebuke in the church. We don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. We don't want anyone to leave the church. And I know this has been grossly abused by some people, by some preachers, by some pastors, who have used it as an ego trip to assert carnal dominance over weak people. I've seen it. It happens. Nowadays with YouTube, clips get put on there. That now I've watched some of these clips, and there'll be a pastor in a church just absolutely destroying somebody, sitting there, looking directly at them, destroying them. You know, and you read the, con- the comment section or half the fun of watching all these videos. And you read the comment section, people's like, yeah, I'd get up and knock that guy out if he talked to me that way. Um, it's just, it's, it's abuse. And there is such thing as spiritual abuse. But because we've seen that kind of nonsense, we just step away and say, well, we, we just won't touch it. But the Word of God does rebuke us. Hear what the Bible says about rebuke in the words of an article written by David Mathis, one of the guy that I read regularly. I had not thought about this until I prepared this sermon and realized how much in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs is centered around the idea of rebuke. Mathis says, The proverbial warnings against dismissing brotherly correction are staggering. The one who rejects reproof leads others astray, Proverbs 10, is stupid, Proverbs 12, and is a fool, Proverbs 15, and despises himself, Proverbs 15.32. Proverbs 15.10, whoever hates reproof will die. 13.18, poverty and disgrace will come to the man and woman who hates reproof. Mathis writes, but just as astounding are the promises of blessings to those who embrace rebuke. Proverbs 13, whoever heeds reproof is honored and prudent. He who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Loves knowledge, will dwell among the wise, and is on the path to life. Because the rod, 
and reproof give wisdom. And Proverbs 6, the reproofs of discipline are the ways of life. To the one who embraces rebuke, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon you. Proverbs 1.23, but to the one who despises it, I will laugh at your calamity. 25 and 26, it will be said of those who reject correction, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. And it's only a matter of time until they themselves will say, I am at the brink of utter ruin. And when ruin comes for the fool who resists reproof, it will be sudden and devastating. Proverbs 29.1, he who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. The wise recognize rebuke as a gift of gold. Proverbs 25, it is kindness and a token of love. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let not my head refuse it. Now that kind of thinking is totally countercultural. To my generation, to my world, maybe for all time and all people. People are proud. They don't want to accept correction. Submission is, that word is gone from our society. Submit yourself to somebody. But we need God's word to convict us and to correct us. One of my school professors teaching and he said of all the definitions of what an evangelical is because that's a broad category today in America the state of American evangelicalism is fractured and broken and produces results like what I talked about earlier people who really have no idea what it means to follow Christ that, that teacher said he said I, I view a true evangelical who's someone who stands directly under the authority of the Word of God. That means you're submitted. I'm submitting myself to God and His Word. We need the Word of God to convict us and to correct us. We rebuke false teachers. We rebuke false doctrine. Let's look at what is next. Scripture is for correction. God doesn't just rebuke us and leave us. He then offers us correction. How to fix what He has rebuked. Anyone can point out a problem. It takes a leader to then offer the solution. Have you ever been in, a, in any kind of group? It could be a church even, or a job, or a volunteer. But you have a group of people, there's always going to be people that want to point out the problems. And I have started answering people and trying not to do it. I don't want it to come across sarcastically. I'm sincere when I say anybody can point out the problem. What's the solution? What are you offering? What, what's the other side of that equation? What's the corrective action? That's how Scripture functions. It leads us to a better path, a better way of life. The last part, it is for training in righteousness. Training here speaks to fitness, to being fit, to being qualified. It speaks here to discipline. It's related to being a disciple of Jesus and learning His ways. There are ethical implications here that Paul is talking about. It's living right when no one else is looking. It's about character and integrity and honesty. Righteousness, godliness, piety, being like Jesus, 
in our lifestyle. If any of this is going to happen in our lives, we must become intentional about allowing God to transform our lives through His Word, through the power of His Holy Spirit. I had a mentor of mine recently, he said, you know, he said, if you would just reset your life, and he said, just, he said, just do a few things every day. He said, just, just a few things every day. He said, it, it would ch- truly change your life. He said, I, I teach everyone who comes to me, he said, that every day find time to spend time with Jesus in His Word, slow down, read Scripture, stop treating it like another item on your to-do list. If you have to, throw out your Bible through a year plan. Stop treating it like it's a box to be ticked this, this week, this day. And then read a good spiritual book. He said, read something devotional. Spend some time with Jesus. He said, dedicate yourself every day to memorizing a little bit of the Bible. Just a couple lines here and there. Dedicate yourself to memorizing Psalm 23, Psalm 46. You really get it, Romans 8. It's on, it's on my bucket list. I want to memorize Romans 8. I want, to, I want Romans 8 to be uh, just part of who I am, every fiber of my being. <clears throat> it should be transforming us every day through His Word. How, are live, how is living differently today? How are you living differently today than you were six months ago because of how God has challenged you in His Word and through His Spirit? What is different about you today? What do you want to be different about you in six months' time? What are the the jagged edges on your soul? What are the things in your personality? What are the habits that you have? What are those things that you are so frustrated with that you said, I don't know if I can beat it today, but if I spend some time with Jesus every day in His Word, maybe in six months, that could be a distant memory. We're always changing, evolving, being transformed, becoming more like Jesus. This isn't related to your justification. This isn't related to you being counted righteous in Christ. This isn't related to you earning your salvation. This is your sanctification. This is your holiness. I want to reflect the nature of Jesus in my life. So there is a marked difference between me and the average person on the street. That the world senses there is an aroma, there is a flavor to my life that people look at and say, that person is different. They value different things than I value. They, their priorities are different than that of the world. Verse 16 is the how. Verse 17 is the why. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I take Paul here to mean that man here is, is mankind, it's people in general. He's not speaking specifically. There's, there's an overtone to him speaking to Timothy and also speaking in terms of it's a pastoral letter to pastors who would be men, but uh, the, the man of God here, it's the man of God, it's the anthropos. It, that, that word is used throughout Scripture, gender neutral. I'm not arguing for a gender-neutral Bible translation. There are those 
they're, that's not good. That's not what I'm saying. There are times when the Bible specifically means man, but in this case, he's talking about people. Maybe complete, finished, whole, so you're equipped for every good work. He goes from that directly into, and I'll close with this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by the appearing of His kingdom, preach the word. Preachers need to be encouraged to preach Bible-saturated sermons because lots of sermons in our pulpits in America today are not Bible-saturated. They are everything but. I don't give a flip, preacher, about all your vacation stories and all of your analogies that happen to you in your life. I don't care about hearing your life story all the time. I want to hear what God has to say from His Word. In most churches, whether they seat 20 or 20,000, the pulpit stands front and center in the church. It's not by accident. It's not just practical. It's symbolic. It wasn't always that way. A big part of the Reformation took the pulpit, which was off to the side, and replaced the table for the bread and the wine. The table was front and center. And it was symbolic. It moved the Word of God to the center of what was going on. It's not negating the table at all. It's saying that in this corporate worship, the Bible dictates everything that we do. While preaching is not a separate component of the worship service, it is integral to what we do. Preaching is worship in the sense that the preacher is exulting over the Word of God while the wonders of Jesus and His kingdom are being revealed to the people in the congregation. It is not worship and the Word. I've seen services advertised, we're going to have worship in the Word. No, it's worship in the Word. We are, we're not worshiping the Bible, but we are worshiping the God of the Bible. And it is the Bible that is revealing God to us. And our exalting over the Bible is worship in the highest form. Preaching. What the preacher preaches creates the tone, the rhythm, the pace, the atmosphere for everything else that happens in a church. Priorities and values are revealed in the content that flow from any pulpit in the church. I don't care where it's at. You want to know what the church is about. Go hear the preaching of the Word of God. Talked to a guy a while back. He said, I go to this, this church. I said, why? I said, just curious. I always want, like, why did you church, choose that church? He goes, oh, he goes, that preacher just keeps it light. I know exactly what he means by that. I went online and listened just to see if I was right, and I was right, because I knew I'd be right. I heard very little Bible in this. I heard a lot of pop psychology. I heard a lot of, yeah, you can do it. There are places you can go and hear those sorts of things. It's not what preaching is. You don't have to attend a church long to know if the blood of Jesus Christ and the fire of hell are central to their theology. trying to think who said it. I think it was Whitfield, but I'm not positive, that said, talked about preachers who wear the mantle that is soaked in the blood of Jesus and singed with the fires of hell. I want to wear that mantle. 
The lost condition of humanity must drive the preacher to preach Scripture without fear and favor of people. Preacher is not a TED Talk. It's not a glorified speech. It's not a sanctified lecture. It is the revelation of the Bible expressed through human voice. And the preacher who walks to the pulpit under the anointing of God's Spirit is not attempting to deliver a great oratory. Not trying to deliver a well-crafted speech that will draw the applause of the hearers. The preacher's sensitivity to the Holy Spirit will unpack the meaning of the Bible under God's anointing. And much of the struggle in the modern church today can be traced back to preachers who stand in the pulpit and feel the need to entertain the congregation. And great effort is made in a lot of churches to take the gospel message and make it palatable or culturally acceptable so people will receive it. That is not the way of Jesus. Jesus was willing to let everybody walk away when he offended them. He was speaking metaphorically and they missed the metaphor. You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to be part of me. And when they walk away, he doesn't say, hey guys, I think you misunderstood me. That's just a word picture. Just come back. No, he turns around to his followers and says, will you go away also? Because he's not afraid to say, if you want to be part of me, you better be willing to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And while that may not be literal, it means something really big. The cross of Calvary launched the greatest countercultural movement ever known to humanity. And our ways are not the ways of the world. Everything about the kingdom of God is counterintuitive to the wisdom of the world and diametrically opposed to the values of this world. The attempt made in the pulpit to make the gospel palatable to the culture may draw a crowd. It will never, ever build a church. In this pulpit, we deal with heaven and hell and blood and eternity and souls and salvation and cancer and divorce and suffering and pain, depression. All the realities of life come crashing against this pulpit. It doesn't have to leave us somber, but it better leave us sober. Our culture is awash in the excesses of casual, flippant, nonchalant preaching. My calling is not to make us laugh or fix our emotional problems with biblical ideas. The calling is simple. It is to preach the Word, unpack the infinite, life-changing truth that resides in the Bible and share it in a way that makes the people of God aware of the greatness of the glory of God. This kind of preaching is expository preaching. It's unpacking, it's exposing the meaning of the text to show God sovereign, to show His divine providence in the Bible. It is premium fuel for our sanctification because it exposes all of us to God's glory. We see Him as He really is. It removes us from the cave just seeing the shadows on the wall and saying, that's not good enough for me. I want to see you as you really are. I want to see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not just Bible-based, we're Bible-saturated. We're not just communicating biblical principles, we're showing how the entire Bible is about Jesus. So we don't go to the Bible to find supporting verses for our ideas. We don't use the Bible to justify our presuppositions. I think it's this way, so I'll go find a text, plug it into it, 
Expositors do not impose their ideas or concepts on the text, but rather allow the text to speak for itself. It is in the text of the Bible that contains infinite revelation and infinite wisdom for us to live our lives. That's the way of a Bible preacher. I fail every week to hit the mark of what that really looks like. But every week we strive to say, Jesus, show us your glory. Show us what's in your word. We are committed to the preaching of the word of God. I'll read one last verse and then we'll stand and pray. He says, as for you, now he's going back, you, Timothy, you, Jeff, you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. You have a ministry. Everyone in here, you have a ministry God's called you to do. Guy in seminar this week, he says, how many know what the word sales means? Everybody gave their opinion. He goes, it's, a, it's an Icelandic word. I'm like, oh, he's going to come up with something I've never heard. He goes, it actually means to serve. And I just couldn't pass it up. I was sitting next to him. I was off to the side of him. I said, that's funny because that's exactly what the word minister means. And he just kind of looked at me and kept going. <laughs> but it's like, 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 no, that's what it means to minister. That's the definition of the word minister is serve. Fulfill your ministry. We are servant people in this kingdom. You have a ministry. It might be to preach. It might not be to preach. Being a preacher does not make you any more of a minister at all. Let me say that. Being a preacher doesn't make you any more of a minister. We all have a ministry. He says, do the work of an evangelist. Tell people about Jesus and his kingdom. So I charge all of us this morning to allow the word of God to challenge you, to transform you, to correct you. Really, I'm, I'm stuck. I didn't know I was going to be stuck there, but in, in my spirit, I'm stuck there on that correction because it's, we're fine with teaching. We love the teaching. God, give us your word to transform our lives. And to that I say, yes. The correction, we're proud people. We're programmed in this culture to be proud people. What do we do is we intentionally submit ourselves to God and His Word and His ways and say, Lord, when I see something in the Bible that does not line up with where I am at in life, help me not to brush that off or say that's not for me or it's not a big deal. Help me to simply submit myself to Your Word and say, help me to be more like Jesus. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, this morning we have went into Your Word we have gazed deeply into the writings of Paul to Timothy, but not just to Timothy. They are written not to us, but they are written for our admonition, for our edification. So I ask you this morning, Lord, that we would be a people that would dedicate ourselves to daily gazing into your word, thoughtfully, prayerfully, what is there for me? Intentionally, slowly, simply reading your words, prayerfully asking you 
to apply those to our hearts. I would like nothing more in this church than for us to be a people who daily walk with Jesus. We ask for your anointing to accomplish this. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you this morning.